Hi there, I am Sarah Jane Case, and I am the host of your new favorite show, Enneagram and Coffee. This podcast is dedicated to discussing the beautiful and hard parts of being human. We use the tool, the Enneagram, a personality map that has taken over the world for increased self-compassion, personal growth, and healthier relationships. If this sounds up your alley, listen to Enneagram and Coffee on the iHeart app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts online. Hello, everyone. Today, I will be chatting with Dr. Caitlin Jetalina. Caitlin is a violence epidemiologist, biostatistician, wife, and mom of two little girls. During the day, she works at a nonpartisan health policy think tank and is engaged as a scientific communication consultant by the CDC. And at night, she writes an independent newsletter called Your Local Epidemiologist, which covers a wide array of public health topics, including gun violence. This is the newsletter that I often linked to when I was on social media because she does such a great job putting all of the information together in layman's terms and how we can apply it to everyday life. So I highly suggest signing up for that newsletter if you're not already signed up. In today's episode, we will be talking about gun violence statistics, demographics of the shooters, how we compare to other countries like our own, active shooter drills and whether or not they might be harmful, and much more related to gun violence. Let's dive in. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode, this podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Okay, everyone, we have Caitlin here today to talk with us about a topic that I know is hanging over so many of us right now. And... I have loved getting advice from her all throughout the last couple of years during COVID, and she has been amazing. So welcome, Caitlin. Thank you so much for taking the time out to talk with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm very excited not to be talking about COVID. I'll tell you (laughs) that right now. (laughs) Well, as I had mentioned to you, I would share your content, you know, all the time because you just do such a beautiful job of breaking it down in layman's terms and, and you know, getting everybody to understand what's going on and how to interpret things. And I remember opening up your newsletter a while back. I think it was actually last year. I want to say it was like last spring where you had said, Hey, I'm actually a violence epidemiologist. And you had this like whole breakdown about gun violence. And I remember reading it and being like, Oh, that's interesting. But man, it didn't apply the way it did, you know, the last couple of months, obviously, I think a lot of us have kind of awoken to the fact that gun violence here in America is unlike a lot of the other countries that are similar to ours. And we are all pretty devastated and trying to learn what we can do to make this country safer for our children and ourselves. So anywho, we are going to talk about all kinds of things today that I hope will be helpful for those listening. And I know for myself, and I'm sure you, Caitlin, I just feel like kind of this bystander where I, yeah, I don't, it's like all out of my control. So I'm excited to talk about, you know, steps that we can take. And just obviously the number one step is just to educate yourself, you know, about the statistics, about what's actually going on and then going from there to try to make changes. So I thought it would be helpful if we could just start off with what the definition of a mass shooting actually is, 
because I feel like this varies very differently depending on your location. It varies person to person. So some people say, oh, well, a mass shooting is, you know, three or more people. And that, and then another state will say, oh, no, it's four or more people. So what exactly is the definition? Why does it vary so much? Yeah. And that's, you know, Epi 101 is what is the burden of a disease or what is the burden of violence in the United States or mass shootings. And we actually don't really agree on what the exact number of mass shootings is in the United States. It dramatically ranges. And I think the number one reason for this is because we just don't have any standard definition. Uh, The FBI, for example, defines a mass shooting as four or more people that were injured or died Another database from Stanford defines a mass shooting as three or more people. There's not consensus on whether a mass shooting is only out in public or do we consider a mass shooting that is at the home because of domestic violence. And so we we don't agree on these definitions. And because of that, like I said, our, our, our count is a little, is different depending on who you're talking to. I, I will say the best count I think we do have is the Gun Violence Archive. And they use a much broader definition, but their latest numbers, I just pulled it up this morning because unfortunately this changes very quickly is that in 2022, we've had 293 mass shootings so far. That's so incredible. Can you put into perspective like, like how, what that is compared to some other countries? Are you able to do that? Yeah, it's far, far, far more higher. And, and that's you know attributed to we just have a lot more firearms access to more guns than other countries. There's about 125 or 120 firearms per 100 people in the United States. The next closest country is Yemen, which has 52 firearms per 100 people. So access is is just skyrocketing and, and continues to skyrocket throughout the pandemic. Now, you know, we talk about like ways that we can we can try to fix this and all of that. And I know we're, you know, our legislation is they're, they're trying to pass, you know, certain laws that will help decrease access and all of that. But since we do have so many firearms that are already out in the open, right? Wouldn't it be hard to then say, okay, let's restrict, you know, you know, people under 21, let's restrict people with mental health conditions, let's restrict, you know, if we put all those laws into place, wouldn't it still be hard because we there's just so many firearms already out there, right? So people can easily get them, you know, through I guess what you would call like a black web type of situation where you're just getting them from people that you know illegally because they're already out there. Like how, like, unless you're going out and collecting all of these firearms, you know, it's like they're they're out there now, you know? And so. Yeah, that, that, the just raw number of firearms in the United States is certainly unique to the, to the states compared to what other countries have done to reduce violence. And I think because of that, We do need those policies, but we also need other prevention mechanisms to tackle this problem in the United States. And it's not an impossible problem. I think in one of my, you know, in one of my newsletters, I compared this as a public health problem, just like we tackled tobacco. In the 50s and 60s, you could have made this similar argument that there's just so many cigarettes out there, we can't do anything. 
Uh, but we showed that that was wrong. We did a lot. It took a lot of time and it took a lot of innovation and tackling it from many different perspectives, but we did it. And so at least epidemiologists, public health people like myself are, are seeing it as we're going to start chipping away at this problem whether rather than just a one and done solution. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. So why do you think that the U.S. in particular is higher than many of the other countries it's often compared to? Like, what are the reasons you think that, you know, our our firearms are so much higher than than other countries? It's ingrained. I mean, it's ingrained into our culture. It's it's in our constitution from the 1700s. And so it just makes it that much more, I think, difficult to to control. Just like tobacco, we also have very, very strong lobby groups for for guns, which means making it even more difficult to even just study. Just us researchers just want to study the burden and what are the correlates to injury and death among gun owners. And so changing culture is going to take, again, a ton of work and it's going to take a ton of time. And I truly think that's one of the reasons we have this. You know, one of the countries that I always look to, which is a very interesting comparison, is Switzerland. They have a lot of firearms per people because their army is of the people. These people need to be armed if they need to go into battle. But they don't have this massive gun violence issue. And because there's a lot of culture around gun safety and gun storage and et cetera, which I think we can, we can, is a low hanging fruit to move this country into the right direction. Oh, that's really interesting. I feel like you don't often, what are the, do you know what the numbers are in Switzerland compared to ours? Like as far as like I know you, I knew you're going to ask that. <laughs> I don't <Sorry>? know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just interesting because you often hear, you know, oh, it's because, you know, and I'm just grabbing these, these thoughts from, you know, like news articles and things that I've seen. It's like, oh, it's, you know, our higher acuity of mental health issues that we have in the U.S., which is simply not true. I mean, you know, we have mental health issues, you know, across the world. It's not like the U.S. is, is particularly different than anyone else when it comes to mental health. But to hear you say, you know, like that there is a country that is very similar to ours in some ways, obviously not others, but, you know, that they have this ability to stow away and carefully, you know, carry these firearms with responsibility is, well, it's actually, it's more positive, right? To say like, okay, well, we do have all these firearms out here. How can we make it safer? And it's, like you said, a low hanging fruit, because we can just say, Hey, okay, like let's advocate more for storing your guns away safely and all that. So I'd love to kind of switch topics slightly. And I would love, there was a newsletter that you had sent out and I believe it was a couple of months ago. And it was specifically about the demographics of the shooters themselves. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I found that to be fascinating how you kind of broke it down. Yeah, absolutely. Before I go into the demographics, I think it's really important for people to understand that finding finding patterns is epidemiology 101. We because if you can find patterns, that means the event or the disease is preventable and if it's preventable or predictable and if it's predictable, that means it's preventable. 
The challenge with mass shootings is that they are relative to other firearm injuries and deaths in the United States. They're incredibly rare. They get the most media attention and, of course, have far-reaching impacts on community-level trauma and perceptions of safety. But because of the quote-unquote rare event, it's really difficult to start finding meaningful patterns. And this leads to very uncertainty in our statistics. But we are starting to unfold some patterns, particularly among the perpetrators, as well as motivations, etc. If we're just talking about mass shootings in general, so not just schools, the close to 98% of mass shooter perpetrators are male and majority 61% are non-Hispanic white and then majority are under the age of 45. And this is these are higher stats than the distribution of these characteristics in the US general population. And so so that's the typical patterns, but if you if you notice we're already off in describing other, you know, perpetrators we've recently seen like the New York subway suspect. And so correlation doesn't equal a causation. We can't profile people and know that they're going to be causing this mass shooting. But those are the patterns we're seeing. The other thing perpetrator-wise which I think is also a pretty low-hanging fruit pre- prevention is that about 50% of mass shooters, so one in two mass shooters, leak their plans to social media or telling friends and family. And among school shooters, uh, this is closer to about 80% of those school shooters leak their plans. And so when we start finding these patterns, we can start then informing what our prevention strategies should be. So for example, leaking Can we create, and this has already been created, a system that people can anonymously report these leaks to someone and they can be investigated down the road? And so finding these patterns are important, but there is important nuance to them as well. Right. No, and I I think the last couple of mass shootings that we've had recently were all leaked, right? I mean, from what I have read. I mean, the most, most of them have in the Buffalo one and the Uvalde one. And it's just, it almost feels like, I mean, have they studied at all why these shooters like seem to want to leak it first? Is there something about that? That's, I just find that kind of fascinating that they have this grand plan and, you know, leaking it might potentially interfere with that. So, you know, from a psychological standpoint, it's very interesting to me that that's what they're choosing to do. It's almost like they, they almost want people, some people to know beforehand because it is more exciting. I mean, I don't know. It's just very strange. to me. Yeah. It's a cry for help. Um, leakage plans are a cry for help. These people are in crises and whether it, you know, it, it, it typically doesn't seem like the leakage is a cry for help, but in the underlying, that's what it is. And I think that because of that, we really need to increase knowledge about what these leakages, what to look for, what's harmless, what's not, what's harmful. And then again, create opportunities for people to report these threats of violence. And maybe in the, in the interim, we'll be able to prevent some of these mass shootings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what is like the most, the most common motivation behind shootings in general. Yeah, so these actually this has actually changed pretty dramatically over the past, you know, since the 60s. By far the most common motivation is a domestic or relationship 
violence that has been skyrocketing since the 2000s. And this isn't surprising, you know, domestic violence overall is incredibly common. Uh, and so the, the use of a firearm during this domestic violence is not surprising to us epidemiologists. Interestingly, since the 2000s, hate and fame-seeking motivations for mass shootings have significantly increased as well. One trend that's decreasing through motivation is employment issues, uh, which I think is interesting, and I'm not sure why it's decreased, but, but that's kind of the opposite trend we've been seeing. That's so interesting. So this question, and feel free if you if you're not sure, whatever, but I'm interested to hear if you think that, you know, with this recent overturning of Roe v. Wade, if we if you think we might be seeing more domestic violence, gun violence in particular, now that, you know, in, in these states in particular that have, you know, banned abortion, you know, with I mean, I just know in, in the history that we have seen increased domestic violence, gun violence towards women when they become pregnant and then they're unable to get the abortion. And then we see that they are unfortunately more likely to be subjected to violence within the home because of that reason. That is a fascinating question. And honestly, something before you said it, I I didn't really connect, but it's possible. It certainly is possible. This is a dramatic shift in our society, Roe vs. Wade. And we've seen, like you mentioned, those that are unable to get a, an abortion are stuck in, the majority of them are stuck in these re- violent relationships and even harder for women and people to get out of. And so it may, I, I'd be, I'm now going to be very curious to watch that trend because I think the biological plausibility is there. Right, right. Now I know me too. That's, that's kind of like where my mind first went, you know, especially just I think, with our minds so saturated with gun violence in general right now, you know, once they did that, I thought to myself, and you know, in the ER, you know, we do unfortunately see a lot of domestic violence. So I'm constantly advocating for patients and giving them resources as much as I can. And to just to think that these, these women who become pregnant, whether they wanted to or not, you know, against their will or not, unfortunately won't have this option. And, you know, their partner, if they don't want this baby, you know, now, I mean, I, I'm so incredibly fearful for those patients, you know, having to go through that. I just, I, I'll be interested to just see how this all plays out because it's something that I kind of just thought about as soon as it happened. Okay. So let's, let's switch to positive vibe (laughs) because every time I talk about subjects like this, I'm like, okay, Lindsay, you got to switch this into something that we can actually fuel ourselves with. So, I mean, I think at times we, especially nowadays, it's just, everything seems so impossible. A lot of the news is very heavy. And like you said, it's one of these policy issues that we can kind of chip away at little by little. How I know you had mentioned tobacco was one of these issues that we kind of chipped away at. Have there been any other examples that you can think of besides like the tobacco issue? I know that I had read that there was a few other ones too, which was, this is just like, it really helped give me positive vibes because we've been here before. (laughs) No, really. Like we need a little bit of like some cheerleading right now. (laughs) Well, you know, I, I've seen 
I think this is really important, this hope, because I've seen very dangerous rhetoric bubble to the surface saying that we can't change gun violence, we won't change this, there's no hope. And that's just false. We can and we will reduce gun violence in the United States. And we do that by treating this as a public health issue that it is. Like I mentioned earlier, we we have the, you know, during the 60s, there seemed to be an impossible to change tobacco use. But today, we, you know, only about 13% of Americans are, are smoking, that's an all-time low. Another example is motor vehicle fatalities. They seemed impossible to change. And in the early 1900s, a lot of people died per vehicle on the road. But we know we knew we didn't have to accept this. And so we made public health changes. You know, this mean didn't mean we banned cars, but we made cars safer with blinkers, backup cameras, warnings. We made drivers safer with seatbelts and airbags. We invented car seats. We launched massive education campaigns to people wear their seatbelts. And we made small incremental changes that really added up. And in 2020, the death rate was about one to two per 10,000 vehicles on the road, which was a 95% improvement since the 1900s, early 1900s. Another example is most recently with COVID-19, you know, it seemed impossible to conquer. It's a novel virus. It's still out of control. It's still killing many people in its wake, but we really leveraged everyone, science, industry, innovators, through grassroots movements, et cetera. And it doesn't seem like it, but we've saved millions and millions of lives across the globe. And so we can do a lot. We can make the unimaginable progress by combining science and education and policy and advocacy and innovation. And we, we, we can move that firearm needle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how, what can we do as an individual? So somebody listening right now, what are some things that they can do to help reduce gun violence? I mean, I know for me in particular, I, whenever I'm feeling really upset and frustrated with something that might be going on, that seems like it's out of my reach. Once I start doing something, even if it's something small to try to move that needle, you know, as a, as a, as a larger whole, it always makes me feel better. So for those that are listening that feel like it's like, you know, this impossible task, what are some things that they can do today, tomorrow to kind of help us as a whole to reduce gun violence? Yeah. You know, there's a lot we can do. I, I picture it. I think everyone's familiar with the Swiss cheese model with COVID, but it's, it's like that with any public health problem, including gun violence, you know, not each layer is perfect, but if we create enough layers, it will help not only ourselves, but our community. The The single most important thing that we can do, and I think maybe easiest, is gun safety. 42% of homes have at least one firearm, and they are typically unlocked and loaded guns. And so, crazy. what was that? I said that's crazy. I, I know. <laughs> yeah. It is. Believe I'm loaded? I mean, who, like, that to me just seems like completely crazy, especially if you have, I mean, if you don't have kids in the house, I guess it's not as crazy, but like, even still, <laughs> I don't know. I just wouldn't imagine that. I mean, I feel like it's like gun 101 to keep your bullets separate from your gun. Yeah, you know, it is, but I don't know if we teach that or advocate for that enough at gun stores and gun ranges. I think this is where gun owners can really help us move the needle. 
with changing cultural norms about what is safe, responsible firearm ownership. What does it look like? And there are people already engaged, but their voices aren't being heard. As a parent, you know, I have two under five. I think that we also need heightened awareness of guns in other people's homes. So for example, if my kid goes to a house, there's a one in three chance they're going to a friend's house with firearms. So we can just add this as in a question we add, you know, we always ask with supervision, what are pets and allergies? And then is there an unlocked gun in your home? You can just easily add it to that. So, so there's that gun safety, gun storage aspect that people can do. I think that we also need to start chipping away at this problem way more upstream. So mass shooting events, gun violence doesn't happen. And the one thing we can do with that is mentor young people. One of the main predictors of mass shootings and violence altogether is just isolation. And so social isolation. And so we can help create healthy, honest, long-term relationships with kids in our community by volunteering at like Boys and Girls Club, for example. We already mentioned the hear something, say something. If plans are leaked to you, if someone comes to you with a crisis, really know what to do. The Sandy Hook promise really empowers people to know the signs What else? I think individuals can really advocate for community level approaches too. We need in healthcare for people to have a complete picture of the patient's life situation. We can do a lot better in schools. You know, for example, active shooter drills are not evidence-based, but there are other solutions. So there's a lot. I think there's a lot we can do. And then of course, finally is voting and putting people in place that have common sense gun policies. And then you can always advocate for policy changes too by, you know, joining Moms Demand Action. For example, I'm part of Moms Demand Action and I get a text message sometimes when there's something going on in my community I can help with. And so they make it really easy. And I think that there are, again, pretty low hanging fruit that we can all do to try and help move this from a community perspective. Yeah. I was going to mention that I feel like this didn't happen when I had my first child, but when I had, I think it was in the last couple of years, every time I've gone to the pediatrician, you know how they give you a little questionnaire and they go through this whole list of questions, which I have now answered four times for every single child. So they've now added a question. I didn't, I definitely didn't get it when I had my first, but it's, do you have any firearms? How are they stored? Et cetera, et cetera, which I think is great because prior to having like eight years ago, I wasn't getting that question. So I think that would be, I mean, again, like you said, a low hanging fruit to kind of educate our pediatricians to be asking that question all of the time. You know, I don't know if it's just isolated to my practice or if it's just in the state of Connecticut. This is what we always ask our patients. I have no idea, but it'll be really great if we could, you know, say, hey, you know, pediatricians nationwide should be asking, you know, their their patients parents this question. Yeah, and you know, I I th- I think pediatricians are aware of this. It certainly has been on the American Academy of Pediatrics, you know, firearm storage, you know, asking about before they go to someone's house, etc. And so so yeah, one is education, two is allowing the the systematic implementation of it. You know, pediatricians and doctors are already asked to do a ton. 
So how do we how do we make this the easiest possible inquiry for them? And how do we provide resources so they can give the patients to get more information? The other thing is that we need to also let doctors talk about firearms in the house. I think you said you're in Connecticut, but there are states out there that limit the doctor's ability to address guns with patients. There was this long fight in Florida. The case was called Docs vs. Clocks, but the law threatened physicians with suspending medical licenses if they inquired about and discussed a family's firearm. Eventually, the federal court sided with the physicians and overturned the law, but this is happening in other places other than Florida. And so this is another place where I think healthcare physicians can advocate for the need of this as well in in policy level. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so I want to ask you some questions from my audience, which are, you know, kind of all over the place. So is there anything you wanted to add to the first section of this that you think you wanted to touch on before we move on? No, I don't think so. Okay. All right. Perfect. What your thoughts are on active shooter drills? Because again, like you mentioned, there's no evidence to say that they actually help in a positive way, but I can like only imagine how they would affect children in a negative way psychologically. I mean, we've, you know, heard stories coming out of children like you know, after they've heard about these shootings, like kind of arguing about where they were going to hide if there was a shooting in their school and like children kind of fighting over where they, you know, where they're going to hide and and that type of situation. I mean, I can't imagine how stressful that must be as a small child and then trying to cope with that stress because it never goes away. You're constantly reminded of it whenever you see something on the news or whenever you have to practice that drill again and within school. Yeah, so they started as lockdown drills in the 1990s after Columbine. And now, you know, approximately like 95% of schools nationwide have some sort of implementation of active shooter drills. But it's not clear whether these are actually effective. And quite frankly, the risks may outweigh the benefit. And then on top of that, we have other solutions that can help. So, I'll kind of tell you what we're seeing in the the science side of active shooter drills is one, they they have small benefits. It does increase preparedness during an, an emergency. Kindergartners are more likely to follow instructions and stay quiet, and they can have shown mastery skills on locking doors and turning off lights, et cetera. The risks with this, though, is that they have, there, there's fear and inflated perceptions of risk. What we're seeing is that active shooter drills, particularly in high school, increase fear, inflated perceptions of risk, like I said, decrease perceptions of school safety. And these feelings not only happen right after the drill, but one studies found that it lasted through their college years. And then another study found, and this was just recently, they looked at social media after active shooter drills in 137 different counties across 37 different states. And what they found was after active shooter drill, there's really sharp increases in stress and anxiety and depression. And the change 
these mental illness symptoms were elevated, not just the day of the active shooter drill, but remain elevated over the course of 90 days after that drill. And so, I don't know, to me, <laughs> the, 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 the short-term benefit of emergency preparedness, is this worth the potential long-term impacts? Given that, honestly, school shootings are rare and feeling safe at school is critical for children's development, emotional health, etc. So yeah, that that's kind of where we're at in the evidence. And I guess it's up to every school to determine whether those risks outweigh the benefits. Yeah. And I mean, candidly, this is just something that I personally, like as a family unit here, I've just been wondering to myself, like, is this something that I allow my kids to, you know, or do, you know, do I allow them to do these drills or do I call ahead and say, Hey, on the days that you're doing these drills, I, you know, would like to have my kid outside of the school. And I think it also depends. I mean, obviously these drills vary, very much compared, you know, school to school, even state to state, town to town. And so, you know, some, I know I've heard from people that some schools do a great job and, and the kids, you know, especially when they're younger, don't even know exactly what they're doing the drill for at all. In which case, you know, I, I obviously there's probably much less stress associated with that compared to I've heard very strange stories of schools kind of really acting it out and like choosing someone to be a victim and, and things like that, which I can only imagine would increase the stress levels substantially. So, you know, it's, it's definitely a decision that you would make based on all of these different factors. But once I found that out, I was just thinking to myself, like, what are we doing? You know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't have the right answers. And I, you know, I, I just, as a mom myself of four kids, you know, you obviously you don't want them to be chronically stressed. And like you said, you want them to feel safe at school. I mean, they have to go there every day, five days a week for the, you know, I mean, they're there just as much as they're at home. I mean, you want them to feel like they are in a very safe place. And if they're doing a drill that says, okay, you might not be safe here. And this is the potential of what could happen. I mean, yeah, so I I wish I hope they do more research on that just so that we can get a better idea of whether or not these are something that we should be, you know. I think most schools probably do them, right? I mean, I don't I haven't heard of any schools that don't do them at this yeah, point. Yeah. Yeah, I think about 95% of schools do it. Yeah. And like you said, there's a spectrum of what an active shooter drill can look like. And um if, you know, Prepare, emergency preparedness is critical for emergencies. I don't. I don't think anyone's doubting that. However, how we prepare for those emergencies is really the big question. I do think that we should train staff and teachers to know what to do, but I think that we can keep the students out of it. But if a school does include drills, there's really great recommendations from the National Association of School Psychologists that say, if you do a drill, you know, don't include a stimulation that mimics an active shooter. You know, you need to announce the drill to students and staff and then also provide information to parents. I mean, some schools do the, do these active shooter drills and people don't know if it's a drill or not. And that, that can certainly damage students. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, exactly. All right. Let's see. What else do I have for you? Okay. Oh, this is a a good one. Okay. So what do you think about arming our teachers? (laughs) (laughs) 
this, I, this I question, I mean, I don't mean to laugh, but it, it drives me bonkers because now we're yeah. just introducing more firearms. Yeah, exactly. I, I, the solution to firearms is not more firearms to me. And you can't just arm teachers. During an emergency, adrenaline is running high. I guarantee you teachers wouldn't even grab the gun in that sense. And so so I, I, I think that this is not a good use of resources. I think that there are other security upgrades we can make, like making sure we have locked school doors, but you know, remaining this careful balance between safety and maintaining a welcoming school environment. And I just, I'm just don't see how a welcoming school environment includes more uh, firearms. Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think I forget, I I believe it was Ohio where they were dropping the training requirement for teachers. So for them to be able to carry guns and so training them from like, it was like 700 plus hours to like 24 or something. Before this, they were requiring teachers to have, you know, X amount of hours, which obviously 700 is much larger than 24 hours. And so, and I also want to say like, you know, all of us go into these professions for a reason, right? Like I, myself and my husband were in emergency medicine because we, we truly thrive off of that adrenaline and that's kind of, you know, our personality and that's how we're built. And we kind of thrive in that type of a situation, but other people, that is the quite opposite of what they would want to do for a career, right? You know, we're all different. And, you know, teachers probably didn't go to school to be a teacher and think to myself, you know, think to themselves, you know, one day I hope to be carrying a firearm and and the need to use it, you know, like, I think that's probably the opposite of what they had ever wished for. (laughs) I just worry that teachers will not want to do their job anymore, because they won't want that type of responsibility. And then we're just going to have less. I mean, teachers are already paid much less than they should be. And that's a whole other issue. But now it's like to, to require them to carry a firearm. I just, I, I fear that that might kind of cause this like mass exodus of teachers because they're not, you know, not going. I mean, I, you know, like I said, I don't even know if this is happening in any states in particular, but just a, just a thought. So what states have the most and the least strict gun laws? So the most permissive gun laws are, let's see here. Interestingly, I know Vermont is really high up there. Arizona, Alaska, Idaho, Mississippi, Kentucky. So there's kind of a constellation of those with the most permissive laws out there. Those with the most restrictive laws, Massachusetts and Hawaii, I think, rank highest for restrictive laws. New Jersey, closely follows. Connecticut closely follows. I just moved from Texas. I know that's more closer to the permissive laws. California is more more restrictive laws. So it, it's really on this spectrum. I think what's, what's interesting, and there's this really recent study that came out that showed that states with more restrictive laws had reduced rate of mass shootings. And this even accounted this was true even after it accounted for other things like income, race, et cetera. And I do know there's also this growing divide emerging between restrictive and permissive states. So it'll be interesting to see how actually the most recent policy that was just signed last week impacts this, as well as just public interest and advocacy as well. 
Mm-hmm. Now, I know you said you you've seen in the in the states that have the most strict gun laws that it it has reduced mass shootings. But how about like gun violence in general, just like overall gun violence? Is it typically it's certain- lower? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. it's definitely lower. I don't know the stats off of my top of no, my head. No, that's totally fine. Yeah, just like as a whole. All right, so let's see here. Do video games contribute to increased gun violence? This is an interesting this is an interesting thing. So, overall the, it, the 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 evidence is mixed. We don't think that video game violent video games lead to gun violence. But we do see that violent video games do lead to more aggression. We're, we're not seeing a strong relationship mm-hmm. between the two. Mm-hmm. And then let's see. The last one I have for you here is, can you give us a comparison of gun violence versus other weapons violence? So knives and things like that. Oh, that's a good question. I will say that it is in the United States, vast majority of violence is with firearms. And, you know, I, I don't think we, I, we talked a lot about mass shootings during this, but it's really important to recognize that about 1% of firearm deaths is due to mass shootings. The vast majority are a combination of suicide, so self-inflicted violence as well as homicides. And with suicides, we see that about 50% of suicides are with a firearm compared to other causes. And homicides, it's, it's, it is higher. Firearms, I want to say 80%, but don't quote me on that. So, so it, it is used a ton more than other mechanisms. And that's because of what we've mentioned, of access, of easy, you know, fairly easy to use. And I, and I think that access issue is something that we can start driving down these numbers. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. I think that's all I have for you, unless you have anything that you think we might've missed overall. No, I don't think so. This is great. Yeah, no, this is, this is perfect. I do have two questions that are unrelated to the topic and to end on a lighter note here. So the first question is, if you could give one piece of advice to moms, what would that advice be? Around guns or around anything? Life. life. (laughs) One piece of advice is knowing that you are doing an amazing job. And this is such a, being a mom is the hardest thing I've ever had to do. And we're, we're, we're all give yourself some grace, I guess would Mm -hmm. be my advice. Yes. You know, I, I completely agree with you. I was, I was just having a conversation with my husband the other day and we have had, you know, just issues with childcare. So I've obviously been working a lot less, but I want to be able to work more. And I was like, the ideal situation here is that I am physically out of the house two days a week at the hospital working because like for my mental sanity, and I just, I give so, so much credit to mother, especially in the last couple of years where a lot of people haven't even had a choice. They've just had to stay home with the kids because of, you know, all these different reasons regarding COVID restrictions and things like that. And I, I just, my heart goes out to you because it is the absolute hardest job, like hardest job on the planet. It's just, yeah. So giving yourself grace is so important. Okay. Last question is if you could make one meal for your family that everyone would eat, that's relatively quick and easy. What would it be? Oh, that's easy. We make taco salad all the time. 
which is ground turkey or ground beef seasoned with taco taco seasoning. And then you make some 90 second rice in the microwave and plop on sour cream, cheese, some avocado, uh, crunch up some chips and put it in a bowl. And that is dinner. And it is so delicious and so easy. I probably give it to my kids too much. (laughs) I mean, it has all the great food groups. It's perfect. There you go. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's fast. Like you said, like, I don't know. I mean, juggling work and kids and tired kids. It's just easy if it's fast and easy. So absolutely. I mean, that's the reason why I made this, like this question is really selfish because it's for me because I need ideas (laughs) because one of my, I don't know what it is, but like one of the most difficult things about motherhood for me in particular is like feeding my family. I just, I, the meal planning, the grocery list prep, like I was at a point where, you know, a couple years ago I was going to the grocery store like three or four times a week because I could not pull myself together enough to like get the ingredients I would need for every meal. It was like really stressful for me. So I would just end up going back to the grocery store because I forgot, you know, X, Y, and Z. I've gotten better over the years, but I don't know what it is. It's just something I don't particularly enjoy. And I, you know, want them to be eating healthy, but I just, it's like, it's just hard. It's hard. And like you said, I mean, for people that are working, I mean, I can't imagine coming home at 5 PM and then like having to figure out what's for dinner, (laughs) you know? Um, that's yeah. And like you, I I just don't enjoy it. Yeah. (laughs) So it's not fun for me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you so much for Caitlin, for taking time out of your day. As I had mentioned to you before, I really appreciate everything that you've been doing with COVID and all the time you've put into all of your newsletters. So for those listening, if you're not signed up for her newsletter, please do. I promise you, you won't regret it. She has the most amazing newsletters that break down everything to do with COVID, COVID vaccines. Most recently, she's had a lot of information about the COVID vaccine for kids. And yeah, I think that's it. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.